0: Is spaceflight accessible for people with disabilities? I'd almost bet if you don't have a disability, you've never thought about it before. But there's a whole team at the European Space Agency trying to figure that out. Let me explain. Let me explain with Sean Defoe, a News Talk original. Hello and welcome and don't forget to hit the follow button on Apple or Spotify or wherever it is you're listening. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that I have a bit of a grow for all things space. And if you scroll back a while, you'll find our episode on space litter, all the junk that's cluttering up our atmosphere. And the episode on the multiverse, that idea that there are an infinite number of universes out there with an infinite number of well, you, all of them being just slightly different. On this episode, we're going to be talking about pioneering research to make space accessible to people with disabilities and about a research flight which happened this week.
1: Two, one, zero, and liftoff, the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle... more accessible. Not only have you
0: got space agencies run by countries trying to explore it, but the billionaires are in on it too. One of the upshots is that more people are now getting to go into space more regularly. In September 2021, American Haley Arcano became the first person in space with a prosthetic body part. She had her knee replaced as a child after suffering from bone cancer and has since gone on to work at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, the place which provided her own treatment. Her SpaceX trip really launched, pardon the pun, a wider discussion about how people with disabilities could be made a part of astronaut programmes. And so, the European Space Agency's Parastronaut Programme was born.
2: Yeah, this is really important to us. Diversity comes in
0: many different ways. This is Dr David Parker, the Director of Human and Robotic
2: Exploration at the European Space Agency. The World Health Organisation reckons that about 50% of the population live with some sort of disability, and maybe 2%. Are really affected by it Um, and so in of course to be an astronaut is a very exclusive thing to be but having a disability shouldn't rule you out and that was really part of this very special project that we launched in this process they're called para astronauts para means para as in parallel or alongside it's like the paralympics it's the parallel uh, process alongside the olympic games And the same way the para-astronaut has been selected, uh, developed, uh, examined in every different way in exactly the same process as all the other astronauts that you see here. We are uh, pioneering something here. It's something we're really excited to be doing. Um, We need to start a process by which we are going to work with the individuals, understand how to adapt the space vehicle, maybe something aboard the space station to ensure that they can live and work and do a meaningful mission aboard the station.
0: Now, the ESA has admitted that they are literally starting from step zero on this, that the goal is to see how easy or hard it would be to adapt shuttles in the space station for people who have various kinds of disabilities. They invited applications from people who are technically, professionally, cognitively and psychologically qualified to be an astronaut, but who have a physical disability, which would usually stop them being selected. And the ESA has, in the last few weeks, chosen its first ever parastronaut, former British Paralympian John McFall.
1: When It's was announced they were looking for a candidate with a physical disability, I thought it was such an inspiring uh, and exhilarating opportunity. And I looked at the person's specification and I thought, wow, this is this is really aspirational. This is a very brave and very bold thing to do. Uh, and with my broad scientific background and vast range of experiences, I I felt compelled to try and help ETSA answer this question, can we get someone with a physical disability uh, to do meaningful work in space? I think that I can bring lots of things to the feasibility study, but I think in particular I can bring inspiration, you know, inspiration that science is for everyone, but inspiration that potentially space is for everyone. McFaul
0: lost his right leg after a motorcycle accident when he was abroad just before going to college. He went on to compete in the Paralympics, as I mentioned, but also has a bachelor's and master's degree in sports science and then went on to study medicine and is a member of the Royal College of Surgeons in the UK. So a very clever and qualified guy. Interestingly, there was a big focus on diversity in the 2022 astronaut class announced by the ESA, along with McFaul. Half of the new astronauts are women and the space agency is basically saying as all this ramps, up, there shouldn't be any barriers to participation. That's something McFall says will largely fall to him
1: in the experiments to come. I've got quite an interesting uh, focus or points of view uh, for human space exploration being the first cohort of astronauts with a physical disability. Not only have we got to undergo astronaut training, but we've got to undergo astronaut training and work out what it is about having a physical disability that makes it trickier and overcome those hurdles. So It adds an an additional layer of complexity to that. I'm extremely excited about using the skills that I have for problem solving, um, identifying uh, issues, um, overcoming obstacles that allow people with a physical disability to uh, to perform the job uh, equally to their able-bodied counterpart.
0: His work though isn't happening in a vacuum, pardon the space pun again. Other programs are looking at making space accessible for people with a much broader range of disabilities. In particular, something called the Astro Access Programme, which had its second flight this week on December 14th, to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 17 liftoff, the last time that man went to the moon. The crew for this mission was really diverse, featuring a number of blind people, some who were deaf, people in a wheelchair, and a double amputee, among others. Now, they aren't going into space yet, at least, but they are conducting zero-gravity experiments, and this was the second such flight. Sawyer Rosenstein was on the first one, he's in a wheelchair after he suffered a spinal cord injury when he was sucker punched as a kid, and describes some of what preparing for the flight was like. There's so much
3: diversity in terms of backgrounds, what they study, where they're from, disabilities as well, and to see everyone come together to make this flight happen and to complete some really cool experiments was I think one of the more amazing parts of this flight, not just getting to experience it, but the teamwork and camaraderie that we developed after having only met in person about three or four days before this picture was taken. There's uh, group calls with the ambassadors and with the entire team to kind of get the game plan going. And then certain disability groups also kind of grouped up to talk about the different mobility experiments and the different experiments for uh, people who are hard of hearing, different things like that. But it really was kind of, we had our own agendas, but we all had our team goal of getting as much
0: research done as possible. Dena Lambert works for NASA and was an ambassador on the December flight that happened this week. She also happens to be blind and spoke ahead of the flight about the preparations.
4: There's a very uh, consistent cadence of, of meeting weekly um, to, to go over the flight operations. Um, and there's also other components of astro-access such as development um, and, and logistics and so, um, you know, there, there's more, uh, hands on deck, um, in addition to the flight crew. Um, there's also the ground crew as well. And then, um, the subgroups that Sawyer mentioned, um, like, for instance, I'm on the blind crew <laughs> and, uh, we, we work asynchronously. And this year, a really cool component is that they open the application up to international participants. So we do have some, um, ambassadors who are, one of them is from Australia. And again, like, I, I'm pretty excited to meet these folks and, and, and talk to them. What's really interesting is that each parabola uh, lasts about, I think it's like 20 seconds or, or so. And so, you know, as we're thinking of experiments and down selecting to the ones that we can actually do, we have to frame them into You know, 20 second increments of what can you realistically do in that amount of time, which, you know, can seem like a lot, but can also go by really fast
0: now I know what you're thinking, what's she talking about? Parabolas it certainly set my panicky mind back to leaving sort tech drawing, but what she's talking about is the zero gravity flights themselves. Basically, all the crew members get on a big airplane and to simulate zero gravity, that airplane flies a bit like a roller coaster. It takes off and then at a certain height, pulls up at a 50 degree angle, which simulates almost twice Earth's gravity then evens out and begins to fall sharply as they ramp back the engines which gives the sense of zero gravity or a bit of gravity, usually simulating gravity levels on the moon and Mars before the plane levels out again.
3: The day before the flight we had the opportunity as well to get on the plane just to see where everything is, work out some of the logistics you might think of so for example I can't walk so how am I going to get from my airplane seat which are normal ones in the back to the floating area which has no seats so we had to work out things like that so it, it was a bit of a process but it was also fun to try working, work and figure all of those things out and I will say from experience that Those 20 to 30 second parabolas feel closer to five seconds to (laughs) break once you're
0: actually on it. In the call he was on, Rosenstein points to a picture of him standing
3: out of his wheelchair in low gravity. Uh, The first flight, we had 15 total parabolas. The first one was uh, Martian gravity, which is one third G. The second you're actually seeing right now on the screen, that was one sixth G, which is lunar gravity. We did two of those. And I have to say that was probably... One of the more unique ones, as great as the zero G was, there was something spectacular about this one six G because I don't know if you can tell in this picture, but for the first time in 15 years, I was basically standing on my own. I The first flight, we kind of pushed off the ground a little and just hopped around like a bunny for lack of a better way to describe it. Right. That's kind of what I figured what happened for the lunar one. So all of a sudden <laughs> I push up and my feet acted like a pendulum. And the next thing you know, I'm upright. Thankfully the two people who were with me, Willie uh, Willy George, that I was able to grab one to their shoulder really quick and realize, oh my gosh, I'm standing. I'm actually looking at eye level with people on this plane. And it was such a surreal but like, cool moment that the second we <laughs> ended that first lunar parabola, they said, what do you want to do for the second one? I just said, I want to do that again and when you think of it like that
0: someone who hasn't stood alone in 15 years could do so in low gravity something kind of magic about that before he died Stephen Hawking got to experience zero gravity as well in 2007 and he was equally amazed it was amazing
3: the zero G part was wonderful and the high G part was no problem I could have gone on and on space here I come
0: But back to astro access. Remember, these experiments are being done lightning quick, 20 to 30 seconds before they have to get back in their seats for the heavier gravity which comes on the way back down. So not a lot of time to do it. Denna Lambert says it's about prioritizing what they can do in that time as a result.
4: Kinda the, the team leads, they've been asking us what are some, you know, stretch assignments, you know, do we want to use? And I think in this, um, this second flight will we'll try for twenty um parabolas. Um we know that the the increased number of parabolas that you do, I believe that's why the the um, it became the vomit comet because you know your body can only take so many, you know, changes and, you know, yeah. I guess I don't know if it's pressure or gravity, but you know, somewhere I I'm imagining we're gonna shoot for, you know, somewhere between like fifteen and and you know mid-20s as far as parabolas Um, and it's it's kind of interesting to use this micro g environment to find out what kind of you know challenges may exist because in you know normal you know everyday walking around you know for myself as a blind person I use my hands um, for orientation you know um, I use a, a cane um or a guide dog you know for for mobility but you're just kind of walking out around the house i may use my hands just to kind of check and make sure where i am but in a zero g environment any kind of um pressure or motion could easily change the orientation of where you are um in space so you know one of the experiments that we're thinking of is how can you uh, quickly identify where you are um, how does orientation change for someone who's blind? Um, and how can you maintain that sense of orientation in zero G?
0: I think this is an absolutely fascinating topic. It's an area of space exploration I'd given no thought before stumbling across this programme but think about the potential of it and if it's possible they continue to build on this I mean there really shouldn't be any barriers for anyone going to space. It could potentially be this great leveller all the technology is new and constantly advancing so why not make it more accessible for people with disabilities than we've made many of our cities and towns back on terra firmer. When you have that sort of a blank slate the possibilities are endless. Thanks for listening to Let Me Explain. This episode was researched and produced by myself, Sean Defoe, with John Kyo as editor and Lachlan Hart on sound.
4: I'll chat to you next week.